During my short time on this earth, I have come to learn something about the way I buy things. Whenever I purchase something that has any kind of long-term value, whether it's a pair of shoes or a technology tool or a car, what I like to do is I like to picture what I am going to buy before I even go shopping. I get it in mind like the ideal price, the ideal color, the ideal size of this thing that I'm looking for to serve whatever need I have in my life. And then then I go shopping. This usually results in one of two feelings. On one hand, I don't find the thing I'm looking for in the size, in the color, or at the price I want, or that product doesn't even exist at all, and so I walk away disappointed. Or... On rare occasions, I find that thing, that thing, whatever it is that I envisioned, that I was looking for, that I wanted to buy, and I'm stoked. So now you can just imagine my excitement when I started to shop for my very first new used car, and there it was. Dependable, affordable, and jet black. My friends, this is not just any Dodge Stratus that you see behind you. This isn't your parents' Dodge Stratus. This was a Dodge Stratus GT Sports Edition. And I'm not a car guy, so I have no idea what that means, except for the fact that it had shiny rims, leather seats, the air conditioning worked, it went fast, made a cool sound, and it had this thing on the back that made it look kind of cool, and a sunroof. And I knew this. I wanted it. I could afford it, kind of. But see, that was the problem. See, even after all of my savings, I was a few pennies short. And so when I wanted to buy this car, I decided, you know what? With my summer job coming up, jobs, I think I could pay this off if I asked my dad for a loan. So I did. I went to my dad. I said, Dad, here's what I'm looking at. Uh, Can I get a car loan? And I have a kind father. Out of the goodness and graciousness of his heart, he gave me that loan. We set up a payment plan, and I began paying off that car and getting to drive it. But you see, there was a problem. Because now I had a debt that I owed my father. And the debt that I owed my father, well, it affected my relationship with him. Not because my father lorded this debt over me, not because he was a dogged tax collector who was on me whenever I missed a payment, which I did, and he didn't even bring it up. No, this debt affected me and my relationship with my dad, not because it was an exorbitant amount, but purely because of me. Because I knew I had this debt. When I was with my dad, I knew I owed him money. When I was away from my dad, I knew that I owed him money. When I talked to him on the phone, I knew, that's right, I owe my dad some money. And so, not negatively, necessarily, definitely not positively, it did. This debt affected my relationship with my dad. So I had to pay it off. You feel me? I think many of us, maybe even most of us, have experienced financial debt at some point in our lives. Maybe you owe a bank for a car or a house or college loans. Maybe you owe somebody something for debt. 
But debt always has an effect. It affects the way you do spend money. It affects the things you can buy. And sometimes it even affects your mood. But what's even more is when it affects our relationships. When you owe somebody who you know, someone maybe in your family, a mom, a dad, an in-law, a friend, what happens is you, you maybe ignore that person at family functions because you're afraid that they're going to bring up the debt or they're going to ask for you to pay for it. And so what happens is the debt has an effect, but then it has a double effect because now there's tension. Now you don't talk to that friend, even though that friend was kind and gave you money, lent you money to buy something. No, now you ignore that friend, and so it has an effect on your relationship. But you want to know what's a thousand times worse? Is when that debt isn't a financial matter, but it's a moral matter. When you owe somebody or someone owes you because of something they've done. Have you ever thought about sin in that way? Sin as a debt that's owed? You had expectations for how that year at school would go. You had an idea of how you wanted that vacation to be. You had a picture of how your day was going to go, of how your school day, your work day, how that relationship would be. And yet someone did something wrong to you. Someone sinned against you. Someone took from you the joy of memories you thought you were going to make, the the love that you thought you'd experience in a relationship, the feelings of purpose and fulfillment you thought you'd get at work were taken away from you because someone did something wrong to you. Someone sinned against you. They took a debt out. That's what happens, and that's what results, excuse me, when family and friends just stop talking to each other. You cut people out of their lives because they owe you. It's the reason why people who love each other get into this tennis match of paying one another back. It's because debts have an effect. But what about when that debt is with God? If you have ever experienced that spiritual moment in your life where you look at the woman, you look at the man in the mirror, and you admit, I'm not the person that I present to the world. I'm not A-OK. I've taken out a debt against my God. I have done things that he said not to do. I have failed to do things that he said I should do. It's because of that that often people stop going to church. They don't want to be reminded that they have a debt out against God. They don't want to be told from God's word or someone who speaks or sings God's word that they owe God something because they took glory, they took honor, they took love that was the Lord's to give to them or to give through them to someone else. They rob joy from other people's lives, and so they don't. They cut God out of their lives because it's awkward, it's tense. What's maybe even worse is sometimes people still go to church. People still do keep up their relationship with God because they think they're going to pay God back. 
They're going to pay God back for the wrong things they did to him, that they took from him. And so their life is one attempt to get good with God after another. You see, debt always has an effect. And if you're following along in your worship guide today, that's our first fill in the blank. Debt always has an effect. Whether it's a personal debt or a financial debt, whether it's a debt of morality or a debt with God, debt always has an effect on your life and your relationship. But that's why God gave us this prayer. A prayer of passion. A prayer that is his prayer, the Lord's prayer. And right after God asked us, begged us, told us to pray to him for our daily bread, and right before he wraps up his prayer, he gives us a prayer asking us to ask him to cancel our debts. When God gave us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, those are the words he used. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And if you're someone who gets concerned about changing the wording to the Lord's Prayer, well, I'll say this. Jesus did it first because in Luke chapter 11, he uses different words. He teaches his disciples to pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And maybe you're older than me or you grew up in the church and so the word is trespasses. But whatever the word is, the idea is the same. Here in the Lord's Prayer, in this petition, what our God is giving us is the most essential prayer that a Christian can pray. Father, forgive us our sins. And I say it's the most essential, the boldest prayer that a Christian can pray because what is Christianity if it's not forgiveness? Forgiveness is what's at the heart and center of Christian faith. It's not service to others. It's not doing good. If it was, I could point out a whole lot of people who are not Christian, who are atheists, who do more good than even Christians. No, it's not service that's at the heart and center of the Christian faith. It's not outreach that's at the heart and center of our faith. It's not evangelism, because if it was, there's Jehovah Witnesses and a host of other non-Christian people that share their beliefs better than Christians. No, it's not even worship that's at the heart and center of the Christian faith because there's even Baptists, or excuse me, Buddhists, not Baptists, Buddhists that worship Christ and their God, not Christ, better than Christians do. The thing that's at the heart and at the center of the Christian faith is forgiveness. The thing that nobody can do better than Christians or no one can do like Christians is forgiveness. The one thing that sets Christianity apart from any other idea or religion in the world is the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness that is based in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness that is given because Christ has given it. Here in the Lord's Prayer, between two really, really big church words, Forgive and trespasses and forgiven sins are two really small words. Two really small words that have a profound impact on us. It's the prayer, Father, forgive us our sins. 
Because here in this prayer, what our God is teaching us is that while debt has an effect, we all owe a debt to God. Whether you're a pastor or a pimp, whether you're someone who goes to church every Sunday or someone who parties every weekend, whether you are someone who can just learn how to sing, Jesus loves me, or you as someone who's learned to sail, uh, swear like a sailor, this prayer is for you. Because it is a prayer of passion, a prayer asking our God to forgive us our sins. Just think about that for a moment. Imagine if you could take out a loan on morality. In the same way that you go to a bank or you go to someone to ask for a loan of money, imagine if you could go to God's bank and you could take out a loan on morality. You step inside the bank and there's Gabriel the angel at the teller and you say, hey, I'm here to get $100 of morality and he gives it to you. The angel just gives it to you and says, there you go, you're covered for the day. The only thing God asks is that you pay it back. You pay it back by the end of the day. You're good, you're covered. And so more excited than even Pastor Matt buying his first car or finding his first car online, you step out with $100 of God's morality into the world, but there's where the problem starts. Because you sin, sin is being sold everywhere. And sin is advertised as the things you and I do on the average day. Get into your car and you realize that you're late for work. And so you're not going to be able to stop for the cup of coffee that you wanted at Wawa. And you drive on and you notice it's raining. And so your first problem comes when you think. When you think thoughts about how life's no good. How it's raining again. How you can't get anything you need. And so you do. Your morality, you take it and you purchase grumbling instead of gratitude that God has always and will always give you your daily bread. Show up at work and you see your fellow co-workers and the first thing you do is ask them how their weekend was. But very quickly the conversation turns to gossip about other co-workers, about your boss, and so more morality is spent. Work slows down in the afternoon, and so you jump on Facebook, and you steal from your employer by wasting, taking time, personal time, and that'll cost you. And you look at Facebook, and you see one friend is on vacation, a second friend just bought a boat, and a third friend got to spend time on that boat, and they didn't even invite you. And so there and then, you buy some jealousy, and that's when you go home. Stop and run some errands on the way home, get into the checkout line, and you're about to check out, and you see a parent parenting their child in a way that you certainly did not parent them, nor would you parent them. And so on top of everything else in your cart, you buy some judgment. You go home, and there's where the significant spending starts, even though it's subtle. You give a snarky reply to your spouse, you see your neighbor, and instead of being a mini-Christ to them and just saying hello, you run inside and ignore them. You're impatient with your kids. You watch the news and you see someone who's not from the same culture as you, someone who doesn't have the same ideas as you, and you think judgmental, bigoted thoughts. And then after supper, you start to worry about how you're going to do everything you need to do to tomorrow. And as you lie in bed and say, you're now I lay me down to sleep prayer, you start to do the math. 
And what you figure is that you have spent more morality than you have taken out from the bank of God. But you pray it to God. You say, God, I got a plan. I I know today was rough, but I'm going to pay it back tomorrow. That's when the angel shows up in the miraculous way that they do and extends his hand and says, now's the time. Pay up. And you explain to him how today didn't go quite how you imagined it would, but you have a plan. You're going to pay it back tomorrow. And you're going to do it and make up for today and tomorrow. That's when the angel asks you, how? How are you going to pay back God? You're starting to see it, aren't you? Sin isn't like other debts that we take out. When I took out a debt and I owed my father, I was able to pay it off because I worked two or three jobs that summer. And on top of it, I didn't incur any more debt while I had that loan. But sin with God doesn't work that way. You can't work to pay off the debt of sin. You can't give more to church. You can't give more of your time to groups in the community. You can't spend more time in his word to make up for the wrong that you did. Nothing you do can pay off the debt that you did. And on top of it, sin compounds. Jesus' word says, be perfect. Jesus' word says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, breaks all of it. And so the second you break those two laws, being perfect, stumbling once, you break it all and sin adds up. The picture of sin that Jesus gives us in his parable is us as the servant who owes 10,000 bags of gold. I don't know how many of you bury gold in bags in your backyard, but let me just make a comparison of that for you. Solomon's temple that King David saved up for, that Solomon and all the princes of Jerusalem saved up for, was 10,000 bags of gold. There is nothing that you can do in this lifetime. There's nothing that you can do in a hundred lifetimes, even trying to be perfect, that could pay off the price that you owe God for your sin. That's the picture that God gives us. We owed God. And David knew it. You know it. When David was called out for his sin, convicting what he thought was someone else, he said, surely this person must die. Because he knows what you know, that God's word says the wages of sin is death. That's the price we owe our God for our sin. Death, eternal separation from him forever. Debt always has an effect. And when that debt is owed to God, it's your life. Listen, I'll never forget the day I made my second to last car payment to my father for my car. I remember we got to spend the day together and then we had dinner together that night and I I remember the pride and the feeling when I opened up my wallet to give him a check for that last second to last payment that I would give him. I remember feeling pretty good about myself as I reminded my dad that I had just one more payment to go when he made a dad joke. He said, listen, my lending agency is actually offering a special right now and it's canceling just one payment that you have going forward. In other words, he told me I didn't have to pay the rest of my loan. He canceled my debt for me. And that's like your father who art in heaven. 
in an even greater way than that, your Father who art in heaven definitely forgave you all your sins. You owed him, that is for sure, but that wasn't a typo. He owed him your life, and yet you owe him no longer because he's forgiven all your debts. Here's the picture of forgiveness that God has given you, the picture of debt forgiveness. It's the picture of the prodigal child, the son, the daughter, who comes running home to God, and even before they make it home, the father loves you. The father forgives you. Let me read just one verse from that parable. But while the prodigal son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. Just let those words, those verbs sink in. Saw him, felt compassion, ran to him, embraced him, kissed him. And all this he did before he could even speak to him. That is the picture of forgiveness that your God gives to you. He loved you before you knew you needed his love. He forgave you before you were even sorry for your sins. He pardoned all of your sin even before you asked for it. He didn't make you grovel. He didn't make you beg. He didn't wait till there was tears to give you forgiveness. And then when he does forgive you, he throws you a party. And not just one time, but two, three, five, seventy-seven times, your God is throwing you a party. Every time you return to him, he gives you forgiveness. That's the picture of forgiveness that God gives us. It's the picture of pastor, prophet Nathan, turning to David. And when David said, I have sinned, he doesn't hang that sin over his head. He doesn't make him wallow and crush him under the guilt that was due him and he was feeling. But no, what did he say to him right away? He said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Because that is the picture of forgiveness. It is the Lord taking away sin and taking it and putting it somewhere, putting it on Jesus Christ. And you are not going to die. But Jesus is. Because debt has an effect. And we owed God. And yet the essence of Christianity is this. It is Christ paying for the very thing that you owed. It is Christ paying God for what you owed God. It is Christ giving his life for you, taking your sins upon you and taking them and placing them somewhere in a grave, in the tomb, burying him and rising to give you life. This is the picture of God's forgiveness. It is Christ the King on the other side of the table, us, his servants, coming to him, begging for his forgiveness, forgiveness for 10 million times what we could pay back. And he gives it to us. And like the servant in his parable, he says, go. Go live in the peace of that forgiveness. Go live in the joy of that forgiveness. Go live in the light of that forgiveness that Christ has given you. Amen. Yeah, that's not how the sermon can end. Because you know that's not how the prayer ends either. Jesus taught us to pray, Father, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. All of us like to keep lists. We keep lists of the things we're going to do during our weekend, during our day. We keep lists for things that we have to go shopping for. And we keep lists for almost everything imaginable in life. But there's one thing none of us need a list for. And that's to remember the people who owe us. 
the people who have done wrong to us. You don't need a list for that. It's ex-husbands and ex-wives. It's friends that have stabbed you in the back. It's bosses and bullies that have said things to you to make you feel ugly and ashamed. And if I were to ask you to list or make a list of the people who owed you, the people who did wrong to you, it wouldn't take long for you to bring their faces up to the forefront of your mind, along with the razor-sharp words and the bruises that they've afflicted emotionally and spiritually. And yet the essential part of the Christian faith is forgiveness. It's standing in the forgiveness of Christ and giving the forgiveness of Christ. Jesus says, as I have forgiven you, now go and forgive your neighbor. And not you should forgive them if you understand Christianity. Not you can forgive them because you're a Christian. Or I know you will forgive them when you, when you feel like you can. No, you must forgive them. You want to know one of the most amazing aspects of God's grace in the parable of the unmerciful servant? It's in this, that Jesus did not call the servant wicked when he had piled up an insurmountable debt that he owed God. No, he didn't call him any, any evil or wicked names then. But he did. After that servant took the grace the forgiveness of our God, and abused it. Listen, this is going to hurt some of you to hear. But the reason why you are feeling bitter, the reason why you are feeling unhappy, is because you're holding on to grudges. You are failing to forgive and its wickedness. The reason why some of you are struggling to build healthy emotional relationships with others and are struggling to hold on to the relationships you do have is because you're failing to give forgiveness and its wickedness. The reason why you are robbing yourself of years of joy and robbing happiness from others that God wants to bless through you to others is because you're failing to forgive others and it is wickedness. And you're saying to me, Pastor Matt, you do not understand. You cannot say that. That's too harsh. That's too extreme. You do not understand what they did to me. Listen to what Jesus says as he wraps up his parable. He's telling the parable and he says to the servant who didn't forgive in the way that he had been forgiven and even to a lesser extent, he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? And then he wraps up his parable and he looks at his disciples, he looks at those standing around him and he says this, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you. In his anger, his master handed him, the, the wicked servant, over to the jailers to be tortured. And Jesus said, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Christian friends, 
Christianity is, if nothing else, forgiveness. Forgiveness from Christ, forgiveness from Christ and from us to others. You want to know how this parable started out? It started out with Peter, the apostle Peter, thinking he was super generous. Jesus, I'm going to forgive my neighbor seven times. Because at that time, the rabbinic law was forgive him three times. Fourth time, no forgiveness. No forgiveness for you. Peter thought he was being generous. And so what the Lord said to him was was very different than what he expected. He said, when it comes to forgiving others, don't do math. Don't add up the debts that others owe you. Don't count people's sins against them. No, forgive them 77 times. Seven, seven times seven. Keep on forgiving them. Why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gives us a picture of love. Jesus love, and he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Because the debt of love we have is from God and is a debt of love we owe. We are obligated as Christians who know that love to give to others. The Christian faith does not call you to a life where you start dealing with sin less, but rather the opposite. It calls you into a life where you know more and more the depth of which God has forgiven you and you see more and more in your life opportunity for those who sin and those who sin against you to experience that same love by showing it and giving it to others. That is what Christianity is about. It is about forgiveness in Christ and giving that forgiveness to others. Listen, forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Here, let me give you three things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting the abuse, the wrong that has been done against you. Taking out the men in black neuralizer and just erasing your memory. That's not what Jesus is commanding you to do. But he is commanding you to let go of it. To give it to him and give forgiveness to others. Forgiveness is not forgetting and doing a mental mind erase. It's making the conscience decision to give it to Christ to nail it to his cross and see it taking away there. Forgiveness is not waiting for the other person to say, I'm sorry. It's not demanding that they give you a repentant apology, a sincere apology, and they do so with tears and humility. No, it is stepping back and forgiving in the same way Christ has forgiven you. Why? Because Romans chapter 5 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's giving grace before they know they need grace. It's excusing the inexcusable. That's forgiveness. And forgiveness does not mean just giving benefit to them. But forgiveness is also receiving blessing from your God. Some of you will remember a couple months ago we did a sermon series called Transformed where we talked about baggage emotional baggage, carrying around with us the hurt and the wrong that others have done for us. And I showed you a picture of that when I told you the story of me carrying around baggage throughout the airport on my shoulder. And what happens? Well, the same thing that happens to us in real life when we carry around emotional baggage. It gets tiring. It gets heavy. We start to break. The word for forgiveness that is most often used in the New Testament is aphemi, And the only reason I'm telling you that is because there's a very specific word picture that goes with that. 
It's letting it go. It's dropping it. It's setting the baggage down and burying it and covering it over with Christ's blood. And what you will see then is that Christ gives you blessings too. He gives you freedom from all of that grudge carrying. He gives you emotional and spiritual health when you let go and give it to God. The Christian author, Chad Bird, said this. He said, the greatest burial of all is the burial of old hostilities and it is the happiest funeral you will ever attend. That's what a couple men experienced in 1913. 400 men, actually. About 200 men stood on one side of each other from another 200 men on an open field in Pennsylvania. They stood there looking at each other with eyes that had seen hurt with eyes that had seen pain, with eyes that had seen loss from the men whom they were now looking at. You see, just 50 years prior, these men had lined up across from one another for the battle of Gettysburg, and blood was shed. But on this day, as the command went out, they marched towards one another, and instead of muskets and bayonets pointed at one another, it was hands outstretched towards one another and the men on each side of the line buried one another's shoulders as they embraced in hugs. And that is what we receive in the burial of Jesus. The opportunity to bury all of the debts that are owed to us and all of the debts that are owed to God in him. To bury our shoulders in the other's arms and forget the debt that is owed to us. Forgiveness is taking that reason that you definitely have to feel hurt, to feel crushed by them and letting it go. Forgiveness is taking all of the reasons that you have to feel cold, to feel indifferent towards one another and letting that go and being fueled by the fire of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness in you. Forgiveness is that. It is praying a prayer that reminds us, that points us to the passion of Jesus Christ, to his work during Holy Week, his march to the cross, where he forgave all of your debts. And, for, and praying this prayer, Father, as you forgive our debts, help us to forgive others. Amen. Amen.